Welcome back to another episode of the Rage Podcast. This is our third episode of season five and part three in our institutional justice series, where we will be discussing racial justice, gun violence, policing, and mass incarceration. I'm joined today with our guest, Julian Rubenstein. Julian Rubenstein is an award-winning journalist, author, and producer. His new nonfiction book, The Holly, Five Bullets, One Gun, and the Struggle to Save an American Neighborhood, was published in May 2021. According to the Los Angeles Review of Books, quote, Rubenstein illuminates the dynamics that help explain the black rage that has spilled into American streets over the past two years. It's an important read, end quote. Writing in Shondaland, Skirt Newmeyer wrote, the Holly is a triumphant achievement that fully brings the iceberg of criminal justice issues to the surface and exposes it for all to see. Not only is it one of the most important nonfiction books to be published in recent years, but it should be an essential reading for anyone who wants to understand the extent to which this country's criminal justice system is currently broken. This book received starred reviews from Publishers Weekly, Kirkus, and Booklist, which called it a shattering piece of investigative journalism about street games, race relations, and law enforcement. Julian's first nonfiction book, Ballad of the Whiskey Robber, was called an instant classic by Canada's Globe and Mail. The book was a finalist for the Edgar Allan Poe Award for Best Fact Crime Book and was a New York Times editor's choice. His long-form magazine work has appeared in The New Yorker, The New York Times Magazine, Rolling Stone, Sports Illustrated, Travel Plus Leisure, and others. His journalism has been cited and collected in numerous anthologies, including Best American Essays, Best American Crime Writing, Best American Science and Nature Writing, and twice in Best American Sports Writing. He lives in Denver and is currently a visiting professor of the practice of documentary journalism at the University of Denver. Now that you know more about our guest speaker today, let's go ahead and dive into the episode. So first and foremost, thank you for being here and thanks for making this time and sharing this space with me. Totally. Great to be with you. So just go ahead and get us started. Would you be willing to just give a short introduction to who you are as a person and then the work for your book, The Holly? I'm Julian Rubenstein. I grew up in Denver, actually in South Denver, and had been living for most of my adult life in the New York area. I was, I'm a, I'm a journalist and I have written one previous book and was writing for magazines and uh, at one point in 2013, I ended up coming across a story in my hometown where I had never done a story before and always actually was interested in doing one. And it really caught my eye and it was about a shooting um, that involved an anti-gang activist. And it had really sort of disrupted uh, some things in, in the neighborhood, which was Northeast Park Hill, um, which is uh, one of the more historic African-American communities in Denver. Long story short, I ended up moving back to Denver and uh, spending pretty much the last seven years working on both a book and a documentary film. That's kind of, it's, I guess, based on that story, but the book ultimately is um, a multi-generational story that uh, really tells the story both of the neighborhood as well as this case. And I think gives a, a much bigger uh, view in terms of its sort of where it sets the story and what, what's happening there against the sort of a national backdrop of some of the 
many issues that are, I guess, uh, uh, part of it. Awesome, awesome. That was something when I was learning more about you that I was really interested that you grew up in Denver too. And yeah, I'm also yeah. from Denver. <laughs> okay, awesome, great. Yeah, where so and are you now? You're now at DU, right? Yep. Okay, yep, cool. Yep. Cool. Yeah, I'm from Aurora, Colorado, so I also thought it was okay. interesting within the book following um, the Elijah McLean and Terrence Roberts case with the protests that happened. So it was really interesting because it was very close to home. That actually was such an interesting part of the story. And I was so glad, as I've said a few times, that I missed my book deadline because had I not, I would have missed the events of 2020, which were absolutely fascinating, of course, across the country, but also as part of this book, which ended up kind of really in a way like underlining everything we've just read by seeing how sort of the activism and the activists are being dealt with. And the main character, Terrence Roberts, as you mentioned, yes, becomes a big part of the Justice for Elijah McClain movement. And, um, you know, only we're only what, a few weeks ago that finally, because yeah, for a long time, the, all those activists were saying, uh, which was such a sad thing, that the only people arrested in the death of Elijah McClain were the people who protested the death of Elijah McClain, um, because they had arrested, as as some people know, um, several of the activists on really trumped up charges that were not appropriate and ultimately were dropped. Uh, and more recently, there have been charges against uh, several of those police officers and the and the paramedics, actually. So kind of jumping off of that a little bit, I wanted to learn more about the writing process for the Holly in terms of, as you said, you grew up in Denver. And then I pulled a quote from you that I saw from one of your, your New York Times interview. And you say, my only impressions of the Holly came from an occasional story about drugs or gangs that made the local media. I felt like I'd been forewarned not to go there and I hadn't. So as you were within the community and you highlight a lot that you really wanted to get that community perspective, why was community perspective so important to you? And then how kind of did it transform your personal understanding of the Holly as a community and as someone who grew up in Denver? You know, first of all, just as a as a journalist, of course, you always want to like get the real sort of not only behind the scenes, but more sort of like a true version of a story. And it's it's, you know, true that it's not always easy to get that from what you might otherwise just sort of read or or on a sort of more surface level do interviews for. And as I began, it was like very clear. And, you know, as I said to the New York Times, it was like I remembered being warned about this place and I had nothing but the vaguest idea. And maybe I saw one or two um, articles, you know, from this would have been in the, like the late 80s or something about the um issues that were going on there, which was a lot of crime and drug related issues. And so I also, you know, really, once I started getting in there, it was just that there were so many things that didn't match up once I was sort of getting to know people and, and not only about the case, but also about the um, neighborhood over the years. So it was, it was a combination of things that were maybe sort of miscovered to some degree or also not covered like the most obvious one I think being that Terrence at the time of this shooting Terrence Roberts the main character was working under this really significant federal anti-gang grant called Project Safe Neighborhoods it's like the biggest um, uh, anti-gang and anti-gun 
uh, program in the country. It's a you know Department of Justice run thing, and there wasn't one mention of it, not even one. No one, I guess, knew or I, I don't know. But like to me, it's pretty significant. And so it was things like that that made me realize, you know, like I need to go like even looking for just just everything. Some sometimes things that I would think would be the most obvious weren't anywhere to be found. So there was a real onus on me, I guess I would say, to make sure that I was getting everything, I guess, that I could. And then also the fact that I wanted to lean into the community perspective was just because in communities like this, there are often powerful interests or organizations or elected officials or even in some case, certain activists who want to sort of be the voice or to speak for the community, but often the actual, you know, interest or stories or, or a major part of the community might be held in the sort of, in the eyes and experiences of the most sort of hard to reach people. And the other side of it is like the story that's always told and, you know, and it was also more accessible. Um, so I just had to really work to make sure that I was offering a side that not only wasn't sort of very much uh, out there or accessible, but was also significant and important, you know, in ways that like many ways that I hadn't even you know thought about at first. But so it was it was all, it was a whole combination of reasons that I ultimately was felt like I really wanted to just a uh, preference really, I guess, a perspective from the community over like, well, they said this, but then the police said this kind of thing. But in what you were saying, it reminded me immediately, I had watched this interview, I forget who exactly it was with, but it was with you and Terrence. And you both kind of talked about the kind of toxic relationship between the community and the media. And Terrence had talked about how they'd gone to like, his ex-wife's house and mm-hmm. they were talking to these people who have like very little of a relationship with him at all to get information about him. And one of the reasons that he felt comfortable talking with you is because you were an independent journalist. So, yeah, I mean, if I would jump in there, I would just say, yeah, that he, um, he did uh, say that early on, he had a perspective that, you know, and I didn't know how much I agreed or what with it. I was just taking it in, you know, um, but he, I guess, felt personally maligned, I guess, by the local media and also shared a perspective that many from the community said to me um, about the community sort of not really having its, its interests or not really ever going deeper to understand it um and that yes that they were at times after of course just some kind of more headline oriented kind of a story uh, in his view Uh, and ultimately i did find in those things that i sort of found significant i included in the book about things that were discrepancies between what had been in some of the media reporting and and maybe what his real view or, or, or perspective was. Um, and I, yeah, it, it was something that I also look at, you know, I mean, as a journalist, what we are also definitely trying to do is whatever would in, in reality, whatever would help me to gain access to someone that I do want to get access to, 
I'll be, if it helps me great. So like the fact that he did see me that way was great. But on the other side, I'll just say that it wasn't like giving me, maybe he felt to some degree that that would mean I'm just telling his story, but I didn't want to only just tell his story. And I didn't want to only just, you know, take his perspective. And there were times when we bumped uh, heads about that kind of thing, because I was was talking to other people who were not um, sort of on his side as much. And um, so I still, you know, did a full investigation, so to speak, of everyone, including Terrence. I mean, I've said before, and it's definitely true, like of everyone I investigated in this story, and it was a lot of people, I, I don't think it's possible I could have investigated anyone as, as deeply as I did Terrence, because you know, I went through everything, whether it was documents, whether it was interviews about him and sort of auditing his life, so to speak, in a way that was, you know, pretty significant. And um, I included those things that I thought were pertinent and uh, telling in the story. And, you know, when I first showed the book to him, I didn't know what he would think. I really didn't. Um, and to his credit, I think one of the best things that has um, that he's done throughout is be able to sort of own up to his past and what he's gone through and some of his mistakes and, and issues. And, you know, and I think that he, I don't know actually if he had, how he completely felt about it other than that he, you know, he didn't, he didn't ask me to, uh, change anything or anyway I just appreciated it of course I mean I wanted him to correct any errors um and there were some things we had to address but uh uh but it was we didn't have any uh issues over or over the presentation over it and, and that that was great because it was a combination of him trusting me but me also having to main, maintain some independence as as a journalist still you're talking I was just thinking about kind of the value of that though in terms you didn't like rewrite people to fit a specific narrative you just took what was right in front of you and so I think keeping the story authentic I think is what makes the Holly so impactful because these are real people who make mistakes they're not perfect they are going about their lives just like everyone else so I think it kind of just ties that humanity puts a little humanity in that and that we all make mistakes we all have these stories that aren't always pretty at times yeah and yeah. really what I saw with Terrence too as a character and I of course truth in my view and I'm a journalist so I would think this but truth is to me always always better and more interesting than fiction yeah. and 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 uh and this was one of those incredibly grand epic sort of Shakespearean type of stories with just so many sub storylines and, and characters. But the main thing with Terrence was I just saw him as just this incredible way to enter a world that it, it through someone who's such an insider. I mean, he really was someone who has just been through everything, you know, from the, the, the heavy into the gang life to deep into the prison world and then back out and heavily into activism and then you know facing a lot of pressures uh around him because of that so and he he just he was um he really was a, a quite a, a revealing way to to get into this story and so 
uh, for that, I, you know, I, I, I thank him for, for letting me kind of ride along through that. And it was one hell of a ride. <laughs> that, absolutely. That makes sense to me. Yeah. When also in what you had just said, it reminded me of a lot. There are a lot of misconceptions about why people join gangs, about what gangs are inherently. And I think we have all of these. I mean, I can think to personal examples of things I heard about gangs. So gangs are just needless violence. But you often drive the draw a tie between um, those within gangs and activism, too, and that a lot of them join gangs out of for lack of a better way to say this, necessity. Would you be able to expand a bit more on that? I mean, definitely in, like, for sure the book, like, goes through what are some absolutely fascinating sort of cycles on a, on a like, a bigger scale thing, which, you know, are the, 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 the sort of intertwining life of, like, criminality and, and, and activism almost, where, where you have going all the way back to, like, a Bunchy Carter, who was the assassinated co-leader of the L.A. Black Panthers, who became a Black Panther after the Watts riots in 1965, when he had been a member of the Slossons, a, a major street gang in Los Angeles, and then had had at an important time turned to activism, um, and then was killed uh, in an in an in a uh, conflict that was uh, uh, fomented by the FBI, actually, as it turned out, and then later you have you know kids who, well, for example, Raymond Washington, who founded the Crips and who actually grew up in a neighborhood looking up to Bunchy Carter. And after that, wanted to um, start something and thought he wanted to start something like the Black Panthers and ended up starting something that was the Crips and, and was a wayward kind of, you know, some youth who were too young and without role models and ultimately falling into, you know, severe violent behavior um, and sort of tit for tat violence and just it spiraled and, and spiraled and, and in a way that later we look at and can wonder in certain ways about efforts, including from law enforcement may have helped stoke this versus wipe it out or, or any of that. And that, and we may be able to get into some of that, but but then on a more sort of micro level, like in these neighborhoods, I mean, the reality is that like kids who join gangs, yeah, they're almost, they very rarely have a father figure. Um, you know, they're usually in a basically some sort of poverty level situation. And um, it's a peer, so, uh, some sometimes peer pressure oriented and or just peer oriented in terms of it's like, that's the, that's a family that's support that's um you know friendship and 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 it's also um i mean something to do in neighborhoods where there's just not alternatives uh for these youth and you know and then ultimately gangs are criminal organizations i mean they're they're just they're not uh they're not you know hiking clubs or they're not clubs you know they're they're they are criminal organizations and they are involved in in violence and in in drugs and um uh robberies and and all kinds of things that are you know seem maybe very sexy or alluring when you might be uh 15 or 16 or 17 
and are going to do a robbery and make some money or going to go after some enemy of yours or someone on the other side or and earn your stripes, so to speak, as they say, from the older guys who you're trying to impress and be part of their cool group. Um, and uh, for, for a lot of people, it doesn't go well. There's so many of them percentage wise, I guess I'm not exactly sure, but a lot who end up, you know, of course, in the criminal justice system, in and out of it and or dead. Um, it's unfortunately, and sort of almost shockingly, in a way, <laughs> when you start to think about it all, it's not, but, you know, that this would start up as a phenomenon and in, in the, really in earnest, I guess, in the 80s and spread and spread and that law enforcement all through the decades has talked about that they're, of course, they're going to stop it and, and it, 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 not that it's easy to stop, but it's ultimately now, in my view, the, the longest running war in American history. It's, it's not Afghanistan. It's the war right here in our own streets that really could be stopped with other uh, in in ways that are probably uh, different than the ones that are being utilized. I'd kind of like to dive right into that because one of the things that you also tied a connection to was gang violence and police budget increases or that a lot of anti-gang initiatives are also funded by law enforcement or conducted by law enforcement. So taking that, what are the other alternatives and ways that we can better support communities like the Holly? I mean, it's funny. I was listening to it just the other day, you know, we're finishing this documentary and it's just uh, the, the, I found the first phone call I had with Terrence and it was, he, he says, well, mother effing, uh, uh, economics. That's what he, he say. he's just telling me what, what, what he said, this is what it's about. It's really, what it's really about is that. And, and that's kind of exactly it in so many ways. Like, I mean, we're talking about income inequality, um, and just a lot of social ills and systemic problems that end up resulting in Really, I mean, particularly African-American street gangs, I guess, are the most violent and cause the most um, deaths. Um, but of course, there are, you know, there's Asian street gangs, there's uh, Latino gangs. Um, and of course, all of them are problems. And, and so many of them are rooted in, in a way you could really say, income inequality. I mean, if, if these kids are not actually like, that's not the life that almost... <laughs> almost none of them would choose that life if they had other choices. So, you know, then you get into, of course, a whole, you know, larger discussion of how to potentially go about working on that. I mean, which is its own massive problem, but it's nonetheless not the way that we're going about fighting like gang violence or gangs. And instead what we're doing is um, gang violence is, primarily, of course, addressed by law enforcement, but law enforcement is involved in kind of problematic ways. I mean, uh, for one, they do use active gang members, even here in Denver, as so supposed anti-gang workers, which is ridiculous, obviously. Um, and, uh, and there's a number of reasons why they do that. But in general, I mean, it's true that gang members or former gang members, ideally, 
of course, where our, our, such as Terrence was, are, are ideal to work with these kinds of uh, youth because it's a very specialized thing. I mean, as much as I might know about it, I'm, I would not be good as an anti-gang worker. These guys need someone they can really, really connect to and relate to. I mean, I did actually do some mentoring and stuff, but it's not, I wouldn't do it on the level that like Terrence or, or others are, are trying to do. But the problem becomes when you have guys that are kind of still in the game and wink, wink to their guys on the street and they're kind of playing both ways and well, who does this help? Ultimately, law enforcement is actually counting their money from the grants they're getting, and they're counting up the number of arrests they make, and these are the ways that they measure their success. Um, but the measure of success with this kind of stuff shouldn't be how many arrests you make. It should be like how many how many fewer this or that there is. And that's just not the goal, ultimately, of law enforcement. And this is the reason these things are systemic, is we have this massive industry set up so that um, it operates by taking these people we're talking about as their main customers and, uh, you know, continuing this cycle that goes on. And there's, it's been rare that there's some anti-gang programs that will show sort of mixed results or Maybe it'll go down and then back up. And after all these years, no one claims to really have found, you know, everyone wants to have the solution and there's no easy solution. But it just seems that the idea that law enforcement should control it from a sort of a either suppression or an intervention level, as opposed to a social services effort that focuses on a prevention model of trying to steer kids in the way out of, away from gangs in the first place and start just basically reducing the pot numbers of gang members and increasing the quality of lives of uh and potential for the youth that are that are at risk um so it's just a it's sort of in my view it's sort of upside down or just overly weighted anyway towards law enforcement and what's interesting is all these other programs and all these, you know, foundations and organizations and elected officials and 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 they all guess what? As much as when everyone's screaming and and disappointed in law enforcement, this and that, they all want to work for law enforcement. And I'm not saying they shouldn't, but I'm saying that they are never really incentivized to push back in ways that they could, because law enforcement is a huge funder and just a it's like. Every time the city of Denver gets a big grant, guess what? They use that to raise a whole bunch of other money. So they just basically double it or whatever. It's, 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 just, it's just a lot of money. So it's like if you're, I don't know, I guess if you're in whatever, some business or whatever, and you don't want to work with whoever it is, the like the biggest company in your industry, I mean, you could try to fight them or you could try to join them and all get, do business together kind of thing. And that's... That's what happens. Um, and, you know, I'll only say that the hard thing and the sad thing is that Terrence was a sort of a, he was an anti-gang activist in the in the true sort of mold of the so-called truce of nine deuce. And this was a, this is all in the book, but this is a, it's a famous original gang uh, truce in LA in, in 1992, when some of the OGs, the original gang members who were, there in the streets and had seen too many of their own just get gunned down and were just kind of it was there were it was too much 
and they wanted it to stop. And they themselves put together this movement and actually they put together a literal peace truce built on the, or uh, modeled on the uh, peace accords from the Israel, Israeli Arab uh, truce in 1949, you know, a battle over land. Um, and, uh, and, and, they, and they moved this thing forward, but found themselves immediately under attack, basically, and they felt and others felt that they were becoming targets because of, of law enforcement, almost in retribution for their success. That's how they felt. Um, and it's hard to be a compete to start a so-called competing, you know, uh, effort um, in a business that law enforcement practically controls. Um, and that story plays its way out again later on in the story of the Holly. I think going back to what you had said at the very beginning of the episode, I think that this highlights a lot of the discussions that we were having over the summer of 2020, especially in regards to looking at where the funds for law enforcement are going and if they're going to really actually benefit the community. And when you were talking, I was thinking, I was like, what if we took that money and then we invested in our schools, we invested in after school programs, we actually made an effort to give kids other resources beyond that, just how much change could possibly happen there. And then kind of going off of that to a certain extent, I was also thinking about the connection that we drew between um, law enforcement and, and the funding, and then also kind of how the media perpetuates certain stereotypes as you and Terrence both highlighted that there is a relationship between law enforcement and the media. Do you think that that also hinders why we're not looking for more um, productive solutions to these issues that kind of seem to be right in front of us? It's the media, of course, has to have a pretty good relationship with law enforcement on one hand, which is because without law enforcement, it's very hard to cover a crime, for example. The problem is that over-reliance on law enforcement. So law enforcement in, a, in an age when, you know, the media sort of, especially local media, needs like stories and information, they can easily sort of set the tone or even kind of control the narrative to some degree because they're like, hey, you know what? We have this one thing going on, but we really don't want them to know about that. Let's throw everyone a bone on these stories and get them over here. And they're now working on these stories or whatever, or they're or they're just covering in some you know very basic way. Or I mean, especially gangsters. Oh my god! I mean, it's just throughout you know the decades and that you know of all the research I've done, it's the some humongous percentage of the stories that have ever been done about gang stuff come from law enforcement sources, you know, and gives them the kind of carte blanche to just say and put, put things how they, you know, would like to do it. Um, and in Denver, wow, I mean, it, it got on a, a level I did not expect, but I first started to see just from some of the people I'd gotten to know that the, the, some of the relationships between real relationships like marriages or, you know, those kind of relationships between media members and law enforcement, which is a little bit rare in, in journalism. It's sort of like, I don't know, it's, it's, it doesn't necessarily cross the line unless 
you're covering something that's in your area. And the really surprising thing, the most surprising thing of many <laughs> related to the media in the book for me was for sure that discovering that nine news, you know, the actually number one uh, ranked or whatever, you know, local TV station here had a reporter who was covering criminal justice stuff and whose husband was an ATF agent. And, you know, on top of that, she ended up in this strange situation that I witnessed in which she was seriously flirting with Terrence and um, trying to get him to talk to her. And, uh, you know, it was, and then to find out that her husband was this guy who would have been deep in the middle of everything that was going on with Terrence and these other gang members in the neighborhood. It was really problematic, I thought. And um, she no longer works in Denver, but that is, I actually spoke to someone who works there now and I just, they suggested that Nine News was just simply wanting to brush it under the rug and had no interest in in really even kind of commenting on it. But uh, but that was, that, that really kind of took the, the sort of cozy relationship between law enforcement and media to another level in which like I would honestly characterize that as a tool of law enforcement was working for Nine News. And, and that's in a, in a situation in which either they should have known or uh, they did know and didn't do anything about it. They should, that should never be, that should never happen. And um, it was it was very problematic. And it just makes you wonder how many other close connections do does law enforcement have to the media? And I would venture to guess that it's many others. Yeah, so essentially then there, it ranges on a, scale of like intimate connections between the two as you gave the example of. Another thing too that when I was doing some research is you had said the Denver Post has still not publicized your book and they said that it was for not having the staff to do it. <laughs> what is your your take on that? Oh man I mean I'm from Denver when my first book came out it was a book that's based in Hungary and uh, a true story about this guy who was a, became a folk hero in Eastern Europe. Anyway, the Denver Post reviewed it. Now, I live in Denver. <laughs> the book is about Denver. It was in the New York Times, it was on NPR, um, and they won't do it. And, you know, it's hard not to sort of note that there are some examples in there of some problematic things or possible failures involved in their coverage. And I guess, yeah, it's, it's really, it's kind of depressing for me because I just feel like, okay, I would have thought that like, if you're uh, in journalism, you should, you know, be above that or address things that might've gone wrong or whatever, but don't just run from it or refuse to cover it. I think like with both that and the nine news, what you really highlight is the accountability piece that's yeah. kind of missing from that whole, yeah. yeah. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Rage Podcast. The Rage Podcast is a product of the Interdisciplinary Research Institute for the Study of Inequality. For more information about us and the work that we do, please visit irise.du.edu. To ensure that we can continue to bring you quality content, 
please be sure to subscribe or follow, like, and share on the platform that you're listening to us on. Once again, this is the Rage Podcast, and thank you so much for tuning in.